Kind of cool to be able to take the Lord's Supper before the sermon. Often we do that after the sermon, but a good change up today. I think it has a way of just calibrating our hearts and minds as we enter into our time of God's Word. I know that it has done that for me already. Um, I'm going to start talking with, or I'm going to start my sermon talking a little bit of basketball. I don't know how many of you like basketball. I don't know how many of you like the Thunder or whatever else, but. Uh, I engaged in a little debate this week with an old friend of mine, and it started because really as a lead-up to last night's game between the Thunder and Golden State, one of the media outlets reported that if Kevin Durant left the Thunder when he becomes a free agent, which is a possibility, one of the teams with a realistic amount of salary cap space to get him would actually be the Golden State Warriors. Now, can you imagine that? That is frightening, right? Because they are just excellent. Um, so in response to my friend, though, who sent me the article, because I wasn't happy with the article at all, I, I said that the problem with that scenario for Durant is that Stephen Curry, the Golden State Warriors' best player, he is a more selfish player than Russell Westbrook. Therefore, it might not be the right move for Durant because he wouldn't get as many touches and looks as he does with Oklahoma City. And this friend of mine was like, you know, you must be joking. You know, in his mind, there was no way that I could think Stephen Curry was more selfish than Russell Westbrook. So I simply showed him that Russ averages 10 assists per game and Curry averages 6 assists per game. And since unselfishness is typically gauged by how often you pass the ball to other players on your team so they can score, objectively speaking... Westbrook was the more unselfish player, right? You tracking with me? Yeah, it all makes sense. Well, my friend, because he lives in California, he went into an explanation about style of play and how the Golden State offense operates so beautifully and how Steph gets everyone involved and how great it is to watch and all this stuff, which is really just his subjective opinion. Because taken objectively, right, using the metrics available for things like assists, Westbrook proves to be much, much more unselfish, having at least a third more assists per game than does Curry. Now, why do, you, why, why do I say all of that? Well, for one, all week I was looking more forward to last night's basketball game than tonight's football game. I don't know about you. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you're a Bronco fan or a, a Panthers fan. But I was really looking forward to last night's game. It was a great game. It didn't disappoint if you stayed up. Some of you turned it off in the third quarter. You shouldn't have. And I also bring it up because there is similar thinking going on in our text for this morning. And I'll just kind of get to that, and I just set it up by way of some review. If you remember, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been starting, or we have started, this study of 1 Peter. And the Apostle Peter, he is writing to suffering, discouraged, exiled Christians in northern and western Asia Minor. And these are people, these are believers who are not feeling at home in this world. Their values are not the values of their culture. Their beliefs are ridiculed and judged harshly by, by the pagans that live all around them. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but that's sort of where we live today as well. So as a way to encourage them, the Apostle Peter starts this letter by reminding them of their salvation. And in the passage we studied last week, you recall Peter reminded, reminded them how they had been saved. He said in verse 3, look back, look back, folks, at how you have been saved. 
Don't forget that according to his mercy, God caused you to be born again by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were spiritually dead people, but God transported you from death to life, from no hope to living hope. And that life and hope, it came to you not because of your worthiness or even because of your desire. It came to you because of God's mercy and Christ's victory over sin and death. He then said, as if those truths weren't enough, he said, I I don't want you to only look back at your salvation. I want you to also look forward. Look forward to the untouchable, undefiled, imperishable inheritance that awaits you. You believers, you need to know that, that a place in heaven is kept for you. And not only that, your life is being guarded as a guarantee. It's being guarded by God as a guarantee that you will make it to that inheritance. So look ahead. Look back. and Look ahead. And then now, Peter goes on, now, believers in Jesus, you need to, be, to believe that now you're being, as, you're being saved as well. God is saving you now, too. Not just in history, not just in the future, but, but now he uses the trials and tests of your faith to make you into something so pure and so genuine, something you could have never achieved yourself. Which is why as you encounter tests, and you encounter sufferings and hardship and pain as you deal with life in a fallen world, you can actually have joy because you know that God is at work right now. Just as he was at work then, just as he has preserved his work for the future, he's at work in you right now. So three tenses to salvation from verses 3 through 9. Salvation past, salvation future, salvation present. Said one other way, You have been saved, you will be saved, and you are being saved. And all of that is being done according to God's expansive foreknowledge, all being done by his sovereign direction and design. So take heart. God is not asleep at the wheel of your life. He has never been asleep at the wheel of your life. He will never be asleep at the wheel of your life. God doesn't sleep. Nothing surprises him, nothing frustrates him, he is always pleased. Which brings us to verse 10 of chapter 1. And verse 10 of chapter 1 is just a continuation, right? Peter is not yet pivoting, the subject is not changing. Peter is still looking hard at salvation. He has said to them in verses 3 through 9, this is how you've experienced salvation. This is how you will one day experience salvation. And this is how you're experiencing salvation right now. So then verse 10, we're going to read to verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes these words. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's Word. So three major points to the salvation discussion are laid out here. Three continuing points that Peter wants to make clear. They are there in your notes. We have salvation promised, salvation preached, and salvation pondered. Let's look at salvation promised. The identification of prophets is important there in verse 3. Prophets. This is pointing to the Old Testament prophets. These were the men of God, starting with Moses, finishing with John the Baptist, men who, who the Lord used to get messages delivered to his people. So, so the prophets had two primary jobs. Proclaim God's word, and then oftentimes within that, predict future events, future blessings, future judgments, things that would take place, kingdoms that would rise up. So proclaim God's word, predict future events. Peter's concern here in this text is with that second job, that the prophets were predictors of God's promised future. And what Peter wants his readers to know is that even though the prophets predicted the coming of Christ, they did not understand all that they predicted. They did not understand all that God was promising in Christ. One preacher used to say this of the prophets. He'd say, I like to think of the prophets as archers who shot arrows of truth up into the air. Isaiah shot arrows of truth. Daniel shot his arrows of truth. Moses shot his arrows of truth. And Ezekiel shot his arrows of truth. And so on and so on. I picture the prophets pulling back the prophetic bowstring and watching those arrows of truth as they disappeared into the sky. The prophets shot them so high and so far that they disappeared over the horizon and the prophets themselves had no idea where those arrows of truth would hit the ground. It's a good mental image, isn't it? It had to be both exhilarating and frustrating to receive divine prophetic revelation yet not really be certain what it meant. And so our text tells us four things about the prophets and their prophecies. One, it does say they predicted the coming of Christ. And you may know this, but there are over 300 separate prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to the coming of Christ. So that's 300 arrows shot up in the air by many different men in many different places over a 1,500-year period, and all of those arrows fell on the person of Jesus. Those arrows of truth landed on Jesus and proved that he indeed was the Messiah. Here's just a few of those predictions. A few of the predictions that the prophets would make about Jesus. One, that he would be born a virgin. It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. That he would be born into the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. That his ministry would begin in Galilee. That he would work miracles. That he would speak and teach in parables. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be accused by false witnesses. That he would be wounded and bruised. That his hands and his feet would be pierced. That he would be crucified with thieves. 
that his garments would be torn apart and lots would be cast for them, that his bones would not be broken, that his side would be pierced, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would rise from the dead, and on and on and on I could go. Point is, the prophets predicted in striking detail the coming of Christ, the work of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. However, and this is the second thing Peter wants us to know about the prophets, and I've already alluded to it, they did not understand much of what they predicted. You know, I, I could just imagine the prophet Isaiah writing in Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. I just see him writing that and then going to the Lord, what? A, a virgin could see, What? And the same for Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah and Haggai and Malachi and all the rest of them. You know, imagine this. Imagine 25 men are trying to put together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. But no one has all the pieces, and there's no picture on the front of the box. Imagine that. You know, add to that that these men don't work together. In fact, they live hundreds of years apart from each other. That's what it's like being an Old Testament prophet. David had a few pieces of the puzzle. Isaiah had a few. Daniel had a few. Zechariah had a few. But none of them had all of them. So the prophets, they shot their arrows of truth into the air, knowing only that they would land somewhere out of sight, somewhere in the distant future. Third thing that we learn about the prophets, they were focused on two things. Two things. They, they earnestly studied their own prophecies trying to understand when. That's the first thing they focused on. The when of what they were predicting. And then secondly, they focused on the who of their fulfillment. The when and the who. Verse 11 says it. They inquired what person and time their prophecies would be fulfilled. Now, obviously, the later prophets, they had the benefit of the prophets or the prophecies that were given centuries earlier. So maybe the later prophets knew more than the earlier prophets did. But they were all still searching. They all couldn't stop inquiring, couldn't stop studying and looking into these details. John the Baptist John the Baptist would have been the final Old Testament prophet, and he had a lot more material than Moses had. But you know what? John the Baptist still wasn't clear. I don't know if you remember, but in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11, John the Baptist, he sends two messengers to Jesus. Why? He wants them to ask Jesus a single question. What was the question? Are you the coming one, or do we need to look for another? And this is John. John is living at the time of the fulfillment. John had declared when he saw Jesus by the banks of the Jordan River, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had leapt in his mother's womb at the announcement of Mary's pregnancy, yet John was still trying to gain clarity about that promise that God had made to his people. He didn't fully understand. So in response to that question there in Matthew 11, Jesus, how does he answer he gives his credentials. And his credentials, the ones that he gives, all of them fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He said, this is straight from the book of Isaiah. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see, that the blind will receive sight and the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus saying to John's messengers, yes. I am the one the prophets predicted. The search is over. There's no need to inquire any longer. You're exactly right. 
So the prophets predicted the Messiah's coming. They didn't understand it, so they searched and inquired for the details. And the reason why it was so important to them, that's the fourth aspect of the saving grace that was promised. The reason why it was so important to them is because the prophets spoke of the suffering and glory of Christ. That is, they uttered prophecies in both of those categories. Prophecies that predicted coming suffering, right? If you've read Isaiah 53, and then predictions of his coming glory, places like Isaiah chapter 9. And that order is really crucial. Peter gets it exactly right. Christ must suffer first and then glory. Jesus said exactly that when he spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He had just risen from the dead, and he says to these men as he's trying to teach them, how foolish you are, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So as the prophets looked into the future, they didn't know exactly what God was up to, but they knew that it involved both suffering and glory. So that's how the prophets felt about the salvation that God had promised. It was the preoccupation of their life. It was all they thought about. It was all they looked into. It was all they inquired about. It was all that they wanted to know. It was revealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 makes that clear. What they wrote down and told God's people, it was not speculation. It was not a guess. It was divine revelation. But I want you to think about it, though, for a second. Think about that it was the Spirit of Christ who revealed the death of Christ. The Spirit of Christ who revealed the death of Christ. So as he revealed the details of how he would be born and how he would be beaten and how he would be crucified and how he would be mocked and how he would be forsaken, all these things that the prophets wrote down, all that had been settled well in advance. Jesus didn't come and do what he did to sort of fill out the sheets of prophecy, to get accomplished what was on the books. No, 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 no. You need to flip that script. The prophets prophesied what they did because the Spirit of Christ, who would do it, told them what he was going to do. The plan was set in advance. Think about that. The the Almighty Son of God, the King of Kings, spoke to these men about the kinds of things that he was willing to suffer for you and for me. He shared it in explicit detail. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm headed. This is what's going to happen. And those things would be done, not because the prophets had predicted them, but because Christ had decided in eternity past that that is what he would do for you and for me. Therefore, your salvation, your salvation doesn't just go back to when you prayed a prayer. Your salvation doesn't just go back to the cross where Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. Your salvation goes back beyond the cross into an eternal plan by a sovereign God who decided to deal with your sin problem and his plan would not be defeated. His program would not be thwarted. He would accomplish what he set out and purposed to accomplish in Christ. So let me ask you then as we move on to this next point, do you have the same attitude as the prophet's? Do you live to know and understand and apprehend as much of the gospel as you can? Because here's the deal. We have all the pieces. 
We have the Word in its entirety. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the risen and glorified Christ. Verse 10 describes the salvation we have. It says this salvation is the grace that is what? Ours. It's ours. We have a preferred position. Our understanding is far greater than the prophet's. They knew, it says, they were not serving themselves. They were serving those who would see the prophecies fulfilled or read of them fulfilled. That's you and me. Now, none of us have heard from God like the prophets, as cool as that might have been, but we have, in fact, heard from God. And His message is more complete and it's more understandable than it ever was to the prophets right here in front of you. You brought it in with you today. Which brings us to the second point in your notes. Salvation was promised through the prophets. And the second, it was preached through the apostles. Verse 12, the things that were announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. What the prophets predicted came true in Jesus Christ. Then the apostles took the truth about Jesus and proclaimed it to everyone who would listen. And out of that, this thing called the church would spread across the Roman Empire, and 2,000 years later, it would be taken to the ends of the earth. Today, if you added up all the people on the planet who are associated with Christianity in some way, the number would total over 2 billion people. How did that happen? How did that happen? The only explanation is the one given in verse 12, that they preached the totality of the message that the prophets had announced. Do you know what preaching is? Maybe you do. Preaching isn't ranting against certain social evils. It's not preaching. Preaching isn't altar calls and emotional manipulation. Preaching isn't standing on a soapbox for 35 minutes every Sunday. All of that's often a part of preaching, but it's not really preaching as defined here. Preaching is nothing less than declaring what God has already said. Preaching is nothing less than declaring what God has already said. As a preacher, I need to be thoroughly unoriginal. I need to deliver what God has said to you, not what I have somehow drummed up for you. The preaching of the apostles focused on the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the the news of God's salvation made available through Jesus Christ. That was their preaching. That's what Paul said his preaching was. How did he define his preaching? How did he sort of hedge his preaching? He said, I only want it really to be about one thing. I want it to be about Christ and his crucified. That was his preaching. Which means for the church, our church and every other church, all true preaching is gospel preaching. It's Christ-centered preaching. Because if not based on the gospel, what happens to preaching? It degenerates. It degenerates into social commentary. It degenerates into to nothing more than life coaching. And you've seen this. It turns into you know, four ways to improve your marriage. Five steps to financial freedom. Six ways to have more friends. And as good as that material might be, and some of that material is really good and maybe even helpful, it doesn't equate to gospel preaching. It's not what's being described here. True preaching is Christ-centered and gospel-saturated 
Because if it's not, if it's not, then we're not reporting the good news of what Christ has done. We're just offering good advice about what you have to do. You see the distinction there? We're not talking about what is finished in Christ. We're talking about what you have to do to make yourself happy or complete the work or live a more whole life. We don't want to talk about what you have to do because you don't have to do anything but look to what Christ has done and fully accomplished. There's a hazardous reversal of the gospel message when we focus on what you do rather than what Christ has done. And these early preachers, they focused on the gospel. They focused on what the prophets had predicted and come true in Jesus. And also note that they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter mentions the Holy Spirit twice in these three verses. He says, it was the Spirit of Christ who inspired the Old Testament prophets, gave them the prophecies that they uttered. And then he says the early Christians, these these apostles, they proclaimed the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of Acts, you see this play out. And so if you want to know the secret of the early church, here it is. Here's the secret of the early church. Here's how it exploded in a hundred years' time. It exploded without any of the add-ons that we consider essential to church life. They reached the world for Jesus. They did it without buildings, without hymnals or, or remodels or pianos or praise bands. They did it without air conditioning or PowerPoint or anything else. Here's how they did it. They believed the Word of God that God really had revealed himself through his word. They preached the gospel of God, that it really was good news to be heralded to all who needed it. And they did it in the power of God. They did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not a message of men, but it was a message from on high. And you know what? The word of God, the gospel of God, in the power of God, that is a combination that still works. We don't need to step away from that. We don't need to see that as arcane or out of date or somehow ineffective. That's what works. And by God's grace, I pray that our church would remain committed to that. The final phrase of our text is fascinating. It tells us there in that final phrase that this salvation says that the angels long to look into the things relating to our salvation. There are two different Greek meanings to the word look. One of them means to stand on, on tiptoe, as if you're at the back of a crowd trying to watch a parade or a concert or something like that. And then the other one means to stoop down. It's the same word used for, for Peter and John as they stooped to look inside the empty tomb on that first empty morning or Easter morning. And so the angels are so eager to understand God's grace that they stand on tiptoe and they bend down from heaven to marvel at the unfolding plan of salvation. That's their posture. That's how they look upon it. And you have to ask, why would the angels marvel at our salvation? I mean, don't they have sort of a privileged position? I'd much rather be an angel and, and, and fly around and, and live in heaven and be with God. I mean, they've got, they've got it much better off than we do. Why, why would the angels marvel at, at our salvation? The answer is pretty clear. It's because there are no saved angels. 
Salvation is not for angels. Jesus died to redeem fallen men and women, not angels. You know, the Bible tells us there are, there are good angels and fallen angels, there are obedient angels and disobedient angels, but there are no saved angels. It's not a category. Only human beings can be saved. Only humans can be redeemed. We alone, of all the creatures in the universe, can experience the wonder of God's saving grace. That's applied to us, no one else. And this fascinates the angels. And it causes them to study and to, and to ponder the, the mysteries of a salvation that they are not recipients of. Epithumeu is the word for long for. It's actually the word we use elsewhere in the New Testament for lust. The angels lust after this understanding. Lust after this experience. I know we only use that word sort of in a negative sense, but they long for it because they can't have it. It's something beyond their grasp. And as they look into it, Peter's message, I think, is made plain as he points this out. What the angels are amazed at, they're amazed at how much God loves you. It blows their minds, if angels have minds, I don't even know how that works, but it blows them away. Because they know nothing about grace and mercy and forgiveness. They've never experienced new life and new birth and regeneration. They've never had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Deliverance from sin. It's foreign to them. That which we have experienced in Jesus Christ, the angels never know and we'll never know. We are far more privileged than they are, and they know it. So they long to look into what God has done for us. So standing back, we kind of see this passage a little more clearly. We see that what the prophets predicted but could not understand. We see what the angels wonder at but really don't know. We see that it's ours. It's ours. And in these verses, Peter is telling them this in a way, he's telling them this in a way that stands outside of them. He's saying, concerning this salvation that applies to your past and your present and your future, it's really a lot bigger than that even. I mean, that's your experience with it, but it's really a lot bigger than that. Salvation transcends all of reality So whether you feel like it's true right now or not, whether you have joy in the midst of your trials or not, consider this. You have to consider salvation is what thoroughly occupied the prophets. These men who heard from God received divine revelation. It thoroughly occupied them. It's what occupied the apostles, men who laid down their very lives for the sake of its truth, who died to see the gospel message spread. It it, it occupied the apostles. And it's what occupies the angels. They can't stop looking at it. They can't stop looking into it. They're all consumed with the subject of salvation. They're consumed with it. Salvation has objective and eternal greatness, whether you agree with it or not. Like what John MacArthur said. Kind of drives this point home for me. He says, sometimes we may doubt our faith. And we may even be tempted to wonder if what we have believed is true. 
It's possible to think this is all a fairy tale. But Peter's answer is very clear. This has nothing to do with a fairy tale. The story of Jesus doesn't rest on your changing emotional state. Christianity isn't about your feelings. It's about the written facts of history, the predictions of the prophets that have all come true in the person of Jesus Christ. When you doubt, remember that your doubt does not determine the truth. Doubts come and go. The truth about Jesus Christ stands forever. So what should we take away from this amazing text? One, I think we should take away that Jesus Jesus is the meaning of history. History is not about men and nations or the movement of armies, the rise and the fall of empires. It's not about about building or buying or getting. History is not about who wins the election in November. History is about Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because when he was born, he split history in two. Every time someone says 2016, they confess the supremacy of Jesus Christ. History is all about Jesus. And apart from him, history really has no meaning. Second, Jesus is the meaning of history. Second, salvation is the purpose of history. And I don't just mean salvation in the limited sense of you coming to faith in Jesus. I mean salvation in the larger sense of all that God intends to do. All that God intends to do when the great drama of salvation will come to its appointed culmination when Jesus returns to earth and he, and he gives his kingdom up to the Father and reigns with him forever and ever. Salvation is the purpose of history. Third thing to take away, we are the most blessed people in history. We know things the prophets never knew. We experience salvation in a way the angels will never experience. We know Jesus Christ, and therefore we understand history in a way that is lost to the people of this world. And so if these things are true, these things I just said, you will never understand the universe or your place in it until Jesus is planted squarely at the center of your life. As long as you ignore the Lord or keep him at the edges of your life, nothing is going to make sense to you. You won't understand who you are. You won't understand why you're here or who God is or why the world is the way it is until you see the central supremacy of Jesus Christ. The salvation that he brings to you, the salvation and redemption that he brings to the world. It's the focal point of all existence. Some of you are here today and you have never trusted in Christ. You've doubted whether or not it's true. Maybe you've said, well, that's good for Christians. It works for them. They're convinced of its meaning. I don't know about me. It's objectively true. It's not subjective to our little whims and emotions. It's objectively true. That's what Peter's trying to communicate in this. So if you've never trusted in Christ because you don't feel like it, peel back and look at what's going on in the world. Peel back and look at why your life may not work. It's because you've never looked to Christ. You can look to Christ today. You can recognize your sin, and you can offload it finally onto someone who will take it. He's your Savior. His name is Jesus.
And you can trust in him to save you from your sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for what we find here in in the book of 1 Peter. And it's overwhelming to think that we are such a privileged people. That the the when and the who of your divine revelation is clear to us. We can see it. We can know it. We can understand how the pieces come together. So God, forgive us for where we ignore that. Forgive us for where we sort of remain unmoved by that. And draw us in. Draw us in to your your wonderful plan to redeem a people for yourself through the sending of your Son who died on the cross for sin and rose again to new life, conquering the grave. And by the power of that resurrection, drew sinners into abundant and new life. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know that new life, I pray that they would trust in Christ today. Thank you for our time together as a people gathered in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.